Hey everyone, quick announcement. If you want to support this podcast, check out my website, useconpodcast.com. There you'll find a link to my Patreon as well as some other interesting things, like the list of books and resources I use in putting each show together. Some other ways you can support this project are by subscribing to the show, writing reviews, or sharing the podcast on social media. One last thing, make sure you follow at useconpodcast on Twitter. Alright, now for the history of US economics. The American economy hustled to get back onto its feet in the 1780s. After the British blockade dissolved, pent-up demand gave way to a flood of international trade. America's sudden re-emergence in the arena of international trade pressured the young country to devise a national stance on tariffs and trade negotiation. This pressure kicked off a debate that persists even today. How much power should the central government have in the realm of the economy? In one corner, Republicans like Thomas Jefferson and most of the southern states argued that the states, not the federal government, should be the supreme authority on most issues. In the other corner, Alexander Hamilton and much of New England believed in a strong central government, capable of coordinating international trade and the domestic monetary system. Though this debate persists long after Jefferson and Hamilton's deaths, in the first round regarding the National Bank, Hamilton emerged victorious, and a marble monument of centralized power, Hamilton's first bank of the United States, was successfully shepherded through Congress in 1791. Back in 1787, which was four years before Hamilton's bank's founding, another monumental event occurred in Congress. It was the formation of the Constitution of the United States. The Constitution outlined the roles of the three branches of government, which were the Congress, the Presidency, and the Supreme Court. In 1787, 55 delegates met in Philadelphia to address the shortcomings of the Articles of Confederation, which outlined the governing structure at the time. The Articles, ratified by the states in 1781, were a wartime manifesto under which Congress operated. Their objectives, and later their key criticisms, were to preserve the sovereignty of the individual states and effectively limit the powers of Congress to wartime necessities, and not much more. The Articles of Confederation confirm states as sovereign and effectively independent micro-nations, operating under what the Articles described as, quote, a firm league of friendship with each other for their common defense, the security of their liberties, and their mutual and general welfare, unquote. Confirming the state's independence, the article stated that, quote, each state retains its sovereignty, freedom, and independence, and every power, jurisdiction, and right which is not by this confederation expressly delegated, unquote. During the Revolutionary War, Congress aimed to create a system that stood apart from the English monarchy by putting the states above the central government in terms of power. With this in mind, the Articles of Confederation focused on preserving states' rights, all the while paying little mind to the economy a shortcoming that became painfully clear during the Reconstruction era following the war, and ultimately fueled the Constitutional Convention in 1787. In its context, the Articles of Confederation were fitting for a brand new country embroiled in a fight for survival. Under the Articles, Congress was endowed with the powers to declare war or peace, make treaties, and send or receive ambassadors. The second of 13 Articles, for example, granted state sovereignty and limited Congress's powers to that which was expressly defined in the Articles of Confederation. Article 8 asserted that states may tax their constituents and denied Congress that privilege. In practice, this meant that Congress could request money from the states, but it could not demand money from the states. However, pressed with their own expenses, many states refused to deliver any payments, leaving the Congress and the Continental Army chronically underfunded. 
Once the war was over in 1783, this underfunding meant that Congress had little means of combating the hostile Spanish in the South, the northern British up in Quebec, or the Indians anywhere. With no means for consistent revenue, the fiscally challenged Congress was also in hot water with its legions of debt holders, to whom Congress had already made a habit of delaying interest payments. Agitation from debt holders, you'll remember, proved the impetus for Robert Morris's Bank of North America, and later Hamilton's first Bank of the United States. Mentioned in a previous episode, the Articles of Confederation denied the Congress the means to enact a uniform tariff policy across the nation. But without uniform trade laws, merchants were inclined to divert their business to whichever ports offered the lowest tariffs on imported goods. From the port city's perspective, tariffs lost their efficacy as merchants could simply avoid them by taking their goods to other ports. And from the merchant's perspective, the inconvenience of having to search for the lowest tariffs proved an annoying waste of time. Many in the merchant class further agitated for a stronger central government, because without one, America lacked any kind of naval power to defend commerce in the seas. Since the British had stopped defending American waters following the Revolutionary War, piracy had become a greater risk to American merchants. The Continental Navy, which America had scrapped together to attack and seize British supply ships during the war, had been disbanded and its ships sold by 1785. But even if the Navy hadn't been disbanded and converted into cash for the Congress, only 11 of the approximately 65 ships survived the war anyway. Pressure to revise the Articles of Confederation and strengthen a national government also came from the business class, particularly those in the North. Victims of inflationary booms and deflationary busts, many in the business class wished for a consistent trade policy and even a national bank to bring some order to the nation's chaotic monetary system. To that last point, throughout much of the 1780s there were only three commercial banks in existence. This meant access to credit and loans was extremely difficult for business people. As we discussed in the last episode, Alexander Hamilton recognized this issue in his report for a national bank and hoped to remediate it by launching the first bank of the United States. To sum it up, some of the economic criticisms of the Articles of Confederation were that it failed to assert uniform trade and economic policies, or to fund the soldiers needed to defend the frontiers, or a navy needed to protect the merchants. It did not appease debt holders or grant to the federal government a source of revenue with which to do so. A wartime creation, the Articles mandated that Congress maintain warships, which it failed to do, organize troop movements, and declare war. But without regular funding, all of this was nearly impossible. All other matters pertaining to the operation of the country, such as the handling of judicial matters and taxing the citizenry, were left to the states. It didn't take long for the limitations of the Articles of Confederation to manifest. By 1786, foreign merchants began demanding that goods be paid for in hard specie instead of paper notes. It turns out, businesses overseas have little interest in collecting paper of dubious value issued by governments of dubious creditworthiness, so they want gold and silver instead. The United States, however, was deep in the throes of Gresham's Law and was experiencing a shortage of gold and silver with which to pay the foreign merchants. Demand for payment in gold and silver trickled through society, eventually making its way down to the farmer class. Daniel Shays, a retired veteran, felt this pressure. Shays, a farmer in Massachusetts, grew resentful along with many in his state at the harsh treatment of debtors in the courts and the extremely high levels of taxation enforced upon the farmer class, especially considering many of the farmers, like Shays, were retired soldiers still awaiting payment for their service in the Revolutionary War. Shays eventually led a short-lived rebellion with 4,000 compatriots, which fizzled out after they failed to capture an armory in Springfield. Though Shays' rebellion, as it came to be known, fell apart not long after it started, it acted to galvanize many in Congress to lean in favor of the Federalist cause. 
The Federalists, you might remember, wanted a large and powerful central government, especially after Shays Rebellion laid bare the military deficiencies of the central government as it were. You see, Shays' rebellion was stopped by a collection of state militiamen, while Congress stood by in horror because of their inability to field an army. The rebellion also hard-pressed the Congress for a solution to the unpaid soldiers, and to the problems of the inflationary paper money supply and the chronic lack of hard specie which kept credit to a minimum. Fear of rebellions like Shays reverberated across the Union, as state and federal leaders alike grew frighteningly aware that the hastily summoned state militias would hardly be enough to stymie a widespread popular uprising. Against a backdrop of deficient trade and tariff policies, military threats by the Spanish, the British, and the Indians, disgruntled merchants, farmers, and businessmen, an underfunded federal government, and one violent insurrection to top things off, five states called for a convention in 1787 to reconsider the structure of the national government. This convention, remembered as the Constitutional Convention, was formed to first reconsider and then all around repeal the Articles of Confederation. The new constitution, ratified in 1788, aimed to overhaul the economy as much as it aimed to redefine the role of the federal government. Seen through an economic lens, the constitution aimed to establish the United States as a haven of free enterprise, drawing heavily from the writings of Adam Smith, amongst others. Article 1, Section 8, for example, outlines the economic environment the framers hoped to create. In this section, it states Congress may lay and collect taxes, establish the rules of bankruptcy, regulate commerce with foreign nations and the Indian tribes, and shall have the power to coin money and establish post offices and post roads. Furthermore, it fell on the Congress to punish counterfeiters and grant to, quote, authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries, unquote. In other words, a system for patents and copyrights. Congress was also granted the power to pursue and punish pirates, and Section 10 outlines that no state shall pass any law impairing the obligation of contracts. Interpreting that economically, these sections read, Anyone who loans money to the government can expect to be repaid through tax revenues. The Constitution also grants to Congress the exclusive power to coin money. Though this gave way to a long series of trial and error, starting with bimetallic coinage, it also revealed the government's resolve to unify the economy. With the power of the mint, merchants in New York could buy cotton from farmers in Virginia using an ostensibly trustworthy and verifiable currency. By targeting piracy, the Constitution puts protections of private property in the national interests, private property, of course, being the most common victim of piracy. And by mandating Congress build the postal system and the roads needed for it to operate, the framers granted Congress the power to ensure transportation infrastructure was of the national importance. Every town, no matter how remote, was to be accessible by postmen, ensuring business could grow into any and every market, no matter how distant. The Constitution also put protection of intellectual property and innovation at the highest levels of national interest. Is it not remarkable that patent and copyright protection is hard-coded into the Constitution? Here also lies the Commerce Clause, which grants Congress the right to intervene on any business with foreign countries or which crosses state lines. In recent times, Congress has brandished this clause to lend legitimacy to federal drug prohibition and the Affordable Care Act and the Clean Water Act and civil rights laws. Section 10 of the Constitution outlines the Contracts Clause, which protects business dealings from state intervention, neutering any state who might wish to overrule a private business contract. The historian Charles Beard, ever the realist, notes that the Contracts Clause was originally introduced specifically to keep states from succumbing to populist pressure for debt forgiveness. Regardless, the Contracts Clause has been used to keep states, like Illinois for example, from revising laws related to public pension liabilities. This, despite having the most underfunded pension system in the country. 
Some politicians have even called for an amendment to the Constitution so that states might be allowed to address the impending catastrophe that is underfunded pensions. But I digress. Through the Constitution, the framers affirmed that the United States is a country where private property is protected, commerce, even to the far reaches of the land and sea, is federally insured, and the means of commerce, the money supply, is to be protected at the highest levels of government. The Commerce Clause remains a reservation of Congress maintained for economic intervention. Throughout American history, the Commerce Clause has been interpreted in various ways, sometimes granting Congress a toehold on the economy, and at other times granting Congress an entire leg. In letter, the clause ensures that states can't enforce special taxes on goods imported from other states, what might be thought of as a micro-tariff of sorts. The clause has also been used to break up trusts and monopolies, whose purview certainly transcends state lines. In spirit, however, the clause has been the backbone of a case against the carrying of firearms on school campuses, and a case trying to make violence against women a federal crime, both citing the harmful effects these things could have on interstate commerce. Though the Supreme Court rejected both cases, it goes to show how the Commerce Clause has been stretched over time. The Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, is certainly the highest profile case of the Commerce Clause being invoked in recent times. The dispute surrounded whether or not the federal government could force consumers to purchase something, in this case whether or not the government could force people to buy health insurance. The individual mandate, as this debate came to be known, was upheld in the Supreme Court on a 5-4 split meaning that the court found the government's requirement that individuals purchase health insurance a reasonable use of the Commerce Clause. With exception to the situation of the individual mandate in the Affordable Care Act, which is pretty clearly a major intervention on the part of the federal government into the free market, I would argue that generally speaking the Commerce Clause has not precluded the free market which Adam Smith and the Founding Fathers otherwise intended, at least not on a macro scale. The Constitution did more than outline the role of the government in the economy. It also addressed a pressing issue at the time. It obliged the federal government to assume the debts of the states. We'll remember from past episodes that the national and state debts were a major issue facing Congress. The issue was salient not only because many in the country held debt notes issued by the Continental Congress and the states, but because many in the Congress held those notes as well. In his book, An Economic Interpretation of the Constitution of the United States, historian Charles Beard takes a look at the framers and the financial interests tied to assets which could profit from the passage of the Constitution. These assets include notes of national debt and speculative land on the western frontier. He concludes approximately five-sixths of the delegates held assets that stood to gain financially from the adoption of the Constitution. Indeed, Robert Morris, delegate from Pennsylvania, held so much war debt that he's remembered as the financier of the revolution. An analysis of the Treasury Department's records reveals that other land speculators included George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, and Patrick Henry. I don't mention this to undermine or lessen the accomplishments of the Founding Fathers, and the benefits they brought upon the nation as a whole vastly outweighed any benefits they might have garnered personally. I mention it only to add color to why so much attention was paid to how the nation was to handle its debt, and to point out how the Founding Fathers had a vested interest in creating a vibrant economy through their work, what Adam Smith might have called an enlightened self-interest. In short, the Founding Fathers set to lose a lot of money if they couldn't figure out the means of settling the federal and state debt situation. I mean, for a document that tried to envision so far into the future, is it not remarkable that something so immediate like handling the debt was hard-coded into the seminal document of the nation? The Constitution aimed to address the complaints of debt holders, as well as those of merchants on land and sea, and the concerns of Congress related to national defense. The document hoped to address unpaid soldiers and farmers as well as restructure the national government into the executive, legislative, and judicial branches. The document's reach was sweeping.
Regarding the heretofore unaddressed issue of international trade, the Constitution, through the Commerce Clause, grants to Congress the singular responsibility of creating a national stance on trade. No longer could goods being brought into New York be tariffed differently than goods being brought into Rhode Island. The framers recognized that tariffs were most effective when applied in a manner which was uniform across all states. In fact, the first act of Congress newly endowed with constitutional rights was to enact the Tariff Act of 1789. Such was the pressing nature of America's need to streamline international trade and begin generating federal revenue. Before we wrap up this episode, let's do a quick status check on the American economy. America won the Revolutionary War at the expense of wild inflation and a virtual wrecking of the domestic monetary system. Massive deficit spending and the injection of federal debt notes into circulation sent the Continental Congress deep into debt. Juggling this debt became a daunting challenge after the war and gave rise to America's first attempt at a national bank, the Bank of North America, and then the country's second attempt, the confusingly named First Bank of the U.S. Goals of both banks were to unify the monetary system under a national currency and assist the Congress with its debt debacle. The Bank of North America, though, failed just after one year of operation. Failure was largely due to profligate money printing without the specie on deposit needed to back up the paper notes. Value depreciation caused the desirability of Morris's banknotes to fade, along with Congress's desire for the institution at all. Eight years later, Alexander Hamilton's first bank of the U.S. picked up Morris's torch and furthered the Federalist goals by attempting to not only unify the currency and lessen the national debt, but also serve as a banker's bank. That is, the first bank of the U.S. attempted to provide credit and lending to the private banks of the United States, which suffered from money shortages brought on by the pernicious workings of Gresham's Law. The nation's fickle monetary system transitioned from a hard currency before the war to paper notes issued by private banks and fiat notes issued by the U.S. government throughout the war. After the war, the nation switched to a bimetallic coinage system, plus paper money backed by specie. All of this monetary chaos did much to invite Gresham and his law. At the same time, the Articles of Confederation failed to construct an economic infrastructure needed to operate a nation. After Shea's rebellion, Congress quickly wised up to the fact that they needed economic teeth with which to mend the dire economic situation of unpaid soldiers, unpaid creditors, a non-existent national stance on trade, and a chronic money shortage. A constitutional convention was called in 1787 where delegates from each state debated and constructed a document which would guide the American government and its economy. The Constitutional Convention produced a document which formalized the three branches of government and outlined their roles and responsibilities. Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution specifically outlines how the federal government would approach the economy. That is to say, the federal government would ensure business could expand to the far reaches of the country and private property in the monetary system were to be protected at the highest level. Section 8 also gave the federal government the right to define bankruptcy and ensure that intellectual innovation and invention were protected through copyrights and patents, per the U.S. Constitution, I just find that amazing, and that contracts, business or otherwise, were not to be infringed upon. In the next episode, we'll dive into the Tariff Act of 1789 and discuss America's storied relationship with tariffs, as well as the economic support and criticism for protectionist policies. Thanks for listening to this episode of the History of U.S. Economics Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and check out the website, useconpodcast.com. Also, follow the show on Twitter, at useconpodcast.